You're listening to the Fresh Hell Podcast. Fresh Hell contains stories of a disturbing and often graphic nature and is intended for a mature audience. Please don't let your kids listen to this, or they might turn out like us. Hi, I'm Annie from the U.S. And I'm Johanna from Austria, and you're listening to your favorite international podcast. If you're interested in all things concerning murder, mystery, and the macabre, you came to the right place. And I think we start right into it, because Annie has a very special episode this week for us. Well, actually, this week and next week, because it's going to be a two-parter. And it's about a case that is very close to her heart. Is that correct? That's correct. So... We originally covered the unsolved murder of the unidentified female that was found in the dunes of Cape Cod in Provincetown on our show in episode 20, which was in July 2019. It was one of our earlier episodes because this case has always been important to me. I just think about it all the time. And then I did a bonus episode with Charlie from Crime Lines, who was delightful. We did that back in June 2021. We released it as episode 116. We did that as part of a film project that we were asked to help with. If you're not familiar with the case of The Lady of the Dunes, at least go back and please listen to episode 20. You could listen to it before or after this episode, actually. It's okay either way. That episode will tell you all about the information on the unidentified red-headed woman who was found mutilated in the dunes of the Cape in July of 1974. And longtime Cape Codders, especially those like me with an interest in mysteries or anything sort of macabre, have held this woman so close to our hearts, remembering her, telling other people her story, and hoping to one day know her name. And now we know it. So this past Halloween, I was in Southern California for my anniversary, getting ready to tour the Whaley House, and my phone started just going crazy. And that was when and how I learned the Lady of the Dunes finally had her name back. Yeah, I should have figured that more people would message you, but as soon as I heard the news, I too texted you, oh my god, oh my god, did you hear? And you immediately knew what I was referring to. I was so excited, and I have to say it all felt very, very fitting, because when I found out, we were actually in Old Town, San Diego. We had already checked out of the Hotel Dell, and we were in Old Town, literally visiting a friend us, you know, remembering the dead, and then that's where I learned that the Lady of the Dunes is Ruth Marie Terry. She was from Whitwell, Tennessee. And just a few months before her body was found on the dunes of Cape Cod in Provincetown, she had married a man who was known by the name Guy Rockwell. He's been dead for decades, and the FBI are now doing a very deep dive to uncover more of his crimes because it seems very clear to me, and I think it will become clear to all of you, that Guy Rockwell murdered his wife, Ruth Marie Terry, in Provincetown in 1974. And this was not the first or even second murder that he got away with. So that's what we're going to talk about today. I really want to thank all of our patrons, all of you, no matter how much you've given, because the money that you support the show with has paid for the subscriptions that we have to newspapers and different Mm -hmm. archives around the world. And that is how we can piece together cases like this for our many lesser known episodes I have been neck deep in old newspaper articles, census records, shipping manifests, birth, marriage, and death certificates, you name it. I have been reading it. And what has emerged is a pretty clear profile of a narcissistic sociopath whose crimes rank right up there with really the worst people that we have covered when it comes to the things that he's done. As I said, Ruth is one of several women who I firmly believe Guy murdered and I'm going to tell you everything I can about these people. I have so much information to share with you and talk through with you because it's all new. But the strange thing is, it's not like Guy is new. It's not that Guy wasn't already known as a probable serial killer. 
Anne Rule wrote about him in her book. It was called, it is called, Smoke, Mirrors, and Murder. And it's one of those anthologies almost where she has lots of shorter stories rather than one book dedicated to one case. You know, it's similar to the book that the Rebecca Zahau case was in. And so in this case, it's in a chapter called The Antique Dealer's Wife. But she isn't writing about Ruth. Ruth is his third, maybe fifth murder victim. Because nobody knew the name of the Lady of the Dunes, right? Because nobody could make the connection without knowing the identity. Exactly mm -hmm. right. Yeah. When did the book come out? More or less. Sorry? When did the book come out? The end rule book? Oh, that's actually a really good question. Hang on. I'm just trying to see. I want to say it's the early 2000s, mm -hmm. like 20 years ago or so. So it's like, for example, if if we would now find out the identity of some unknown victim from the 60s, for example, and then it would be figured mm -hmm. out that John List is the murderer. We already know that John List is a murderer, but... Right. Yes. Okay, yes. I get it. That's uh, interesting. Um, yeah. It looks like this came out in 2015. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it looks like it came out, Anne Rolls' book came out in 2015. But yeah, like you said... He was never caught for it. He was never caught. He never paid for okay. any for anything he ever did. So people knew people knew he was a killer. I don't think it was people could never prove it was the problem, mm -hmm. which we're going to talk about that in depth next week. When I lay out the evidence that they had against this man, I don't know how they didn't prosecute. I understand that it's all circumstantial, but wait till next week. It's there's a lot. Sources. So there's the Anne Rule book, which looks like it was from 2015. There's an article entitled Too Many Women, Too Many Lies. It's by Ruth Reynolds, and I first found it in the Honolulu Advertiser. It was dated 7th of January 1962, but I've seen it reprinted in like a dozen different newspapers, all by Ruth Reynolds, though. So I'm hopeful she is, in fact, the source because it's a really comprehensive article. And then, of course, I'll be citing as we go, but primarily it's just a lot of newspaper articles from the 1960s. All right, so we're going to begin with Guy's father, and his name was Albert. We're going to get a little bit more into Guy's dad because when I was trying to research who he was and where he came from and figuring out whether was there a reason for how he was, I found his father's past very, very interesting, and I do see a little bit of a pattern there with women, not with violence. I think you'll see what I mean as we go. Okay, so his father, Albert Moldovan, was a Russian immigrant who had a very interesting and somewhat complicated life. He's also listed as emigrating from Poland, and this is because where he was from was previously part of Russia before Polish independence. I think he self-identified as Polish because he always talks about any quote you see with him speaking about the Russian, it's an us versus them, like a, a comparative, and he doesn't, I don't think he identifies as Russian. I could be wrong. He arrived in New York in 1906, emigrated, and Hebrew was his first language. The name of the town he was listed as being from is Vasilkov, close to Bialystok. And the Museum of Jewish Heritage has an article called Devastation, Destruction, the 1906 Bialystok Pogrom by Mara Sonnenschein. And she writes in part, this is just a brief abridged part of that, quote, Violent intimidation and murder of Jews wasn't created by the Third Reich. Starting in the 19th century, anti-Jewish pogroms in Russia and its borderlands resulted in the murder of at least 15,000 Jews and the rape of a third of all Jewish women in the region. Pogrom is a Russian word defined by the Oxford English Dictionary as meaning devastation, destruction, or, in common usage, as an organized, officially tolerated attack on any community or group. The Holocaust Encyclopedia notes that, historically, pogroms referred to attacks by non-Jews on the local Jewish population. One of the pogroms in the second wave was the June 1906 attack in Bialystok, a city in the Western Russian Empire whose Jewish citizens made up the majority of the population. In the first three days of June 1906, 70 Jews were killed and 90 were seriously injured, the most violent of the mob outbreaks against Russian Jewry that year, end quote. Terrible, terrible things. I'll link to the article. It's really fascinating and terrible but Albert makes it to the United States 
And I think it's safe to say that he lives the sort of quintessential American dream. Soon, at the age of 19, he was the youngest stockbroker on the New York Stock Exchange. That was in his second ex-wife's obituary. But he married his first ex-wife, Sylvia, in New York City in November of 1919. Sylvia was the daughter of Russian immigrants. Hebrew was also her first language, according to the 1920 census. And that shows them living in Queens, where 27-year-old Albert is listed as an executive. Kind of hard to work out exactly where he's working, but I know he was working in sugar around this time in that industry. Their first child, a son named Michael, is born in December of 1920. And they take their new baby traveling with them. I found records of Sylvia, Albert, and baby Michael on the Cunard line in first class, uh, going from New York to Southampton. I found trips of them sailing from Havana, Cuba to Key West. Their second son was born in October 1923. They named him Rockwell Guy Muldivan. So that's an interesting name. I like it. I've seen some reports saying that he's adopted. He might be. I don't know. This is one of those things where I'm not sure whether he's actually adopted or or if he was more disowned. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't really factor into anything. I don't think I don't think anybody can plan on having like a sociopath, right? That just happens. But I've got him as a five year old sailing with his parents and older brother from Italy to New York. And <laughs> This fucking guy. This is the phrase that's been in my head because of his name, Rockwell Guy. So it's a very, this fucking guy, I feel like is a very Northeast saying, like, look at this fucking guy. We say it all the time. Somebody trying to park. It's not gender specific. It's just like, look at this asshole. And you will understand why I've been using this phrase constantly, constantly with this guy, which is actually his name. So (laughs) pun intended. All right. 1923, Guy is born. Albert then writes a book called The Red Fog Lifts in 1931. And this is what the Wichita Falls Times had to say on August 11th of 1931. Quote, Albert Muldavin, author of The Red Fog Lifts, reports days of riding on his ranch in New Mexico, or he has been vacationing. His international business interests often called him back for a flying visit to New York. The Red Fog Lifts is receiving excellent reviews in the press. As the outlook says, quote, after 14 years of rhetorical, emotional, statistical, political, sociological, and other serious books on Russia, here is an informal, human, and humorous book, which does more to lift the veil from the granite face of Bolshevism and other writers, end quote. Then I found an article in the Virginian Pilot from June 22, 1931, there's another review of Albert's book, and at the end it says, quote, Albert Moldavin, who opens this new window on Russia, has been in Wall Street ever since he was 19. He is associated with a line of tank steamships, and for years has been an officer in various corporations which have international trading affiliations, such as the American-Chinese Triangle Fur Company and the Spanish-American Barcelona Company. At one time, he was an officer of the Sugar Products Company, which is now a part of the United States National Distilleries. End quote. All right, so... It's a lot. <laughs> yeah, he's, he has a lot of accomplishments. Yes, yeah, definitely. Next, we find this in the Santa Fe, New Mexican. It says on page one of their September 23rd, 1935 issue, quote, Albert Moldavin, exporter, traveler, and writer, who is in the city, will spend six months of each year in Russia. He has written an interesting book on Russia, The Red Fog Lifts. He recently returned to this country from China, end quote. So somewhere in that time frame, Sylvia, who lives on a ranch with the boys, and Albert, who may or may not have been spending six months a year back in Russia, they get divorced. I also found out that there's a Las Vegas in New Mexico. There were lots of articles about how Sylvia was shopping in Las Vegas or seen in Las Vegas. And I'm like, wow, there. And then I was like, wait, no, the time is all wrong for this. There is a Las Vegas, New Mexico, and it was first. So, all right. In 1934, Albert marries a woman named Virginia. She is a very talented artist, especially photography. They have four children, including their firstborn, our twin boys. The 1940 census shows them living in Marin County, California, so big money area. 
just north of San Francisco. They'll divorce not long after this. Then I found a timeline in the Cape Cod Times by Zane Razak, 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 R-A-Z-Z-A-Q. Zane, thank you for this timeline. This was published in the Cape Cod Times, as I said, November 8th, 2022, and in it, it says, quote, July 30th, 1939, the Worcester Telegram publishes an article titled From Wall Street Turmoil to Cape Cod Peace. The story focuses on Albert Moldavin, father of Guy Rockwell Moldavin, the ex-capitalist who spent 23 years on Wall Street as a trader and industrial expert, is described as living in the oldest house in Provincetown with his family after severing his Wall Street ties forever. Quote, he has enough to take care of his family in handsome fashion and to travel indefinitely, but all agree that the simple existence in a rose-vined cottage on Cape Cod is far more preferable to the top-shelf life of the metropolis, end quote. Hell yeah. It's hard to argue with that. I take a rose-vined cottage every day. Every day. Yeah. So the last name is... M-U-L-D-A-V-I-N, which is, I think, an Americanized version of another name mm. that he previously had when he emigrated. And I've heard it pronounced Moldavin, and I've heard it pronounced Moldavin. And I, I will probably end up using them interchangeably. It doesn't really matter because the people who are still living Moldavins or Moldavins are nice, are nice people. They're, you know, this is just one problematic person in the family. It's just not that common a name, so... Now it's 1940, and 16-year-old Guy, 19-year-old Michael are living with their mother on their on her ranch in San Miguel County, New Mexico. I think also that they did visit with their father. I found occasional records of one of his sons with him, like returning from a trip. So I could be wrong, but I think I, I don't think there was any estrangement or anything. Then we have a record of Albert Moldovan getting married in 1951, and then getting divorced again in 1952. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. His dad gets married and divorced a lot. I know maybe it's too much with the forensic psychology, but I can't help but look at Guy's early life. I was trying to see if there were patterns, you know, that we would see mm. so often with serial killers, like head trauma. Was he abused? Mm -hmm. Was he neglected? Was he... I don't see it. I don't see it anywhere. As far as I can tell, I mean, I think they had their normal family dysfunctions. I think their their dad got married a lot. And yeah. I'm not sure what that was all about, but I think that everyone else is very successful. You're going to hear me say this a lot, probably. They're all really good people, I think. It's just this one fucking guy. Like, the worst. Albert gets married and divorced a lot. So does Guy. Like I said, I think, he, I think Albert was a good person. No reason to think he wasn't. I know six children that he had, and apart from Guy, they're all highly accomplished, decent, interesting, nice people. And I think ultimately Guy was estranged from all of them. We'll talk about that a little bit more when we get into the trial next week, even though they were always trying to help them. I think the family, I, I think the family really knew that something wasn't right with him. You know what I mean? Mm. It's one of those. Yeah. I do wonder if the love life and travels of his dad maybe shaped his sick mind in some intentional way. Like, did he feel like he had to live up to his father's accomplishments? or exploits. He certainly lied about his own past, and he often lied saying that he had accomplishments that actually his brother or father had achieved. But I don't know how you can compete if that's even what's going on. I don't, I don't know. I found it, I don't know how to des describe the way I feel about it. Like it's, I think it's interesting, and I think it's impacted his life, but I don't think it caused any of it. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah, totally, yeah. All right. Then we find Rockwell Guy Moldovan's World War II draft card. I'll post an image of it for you. It's dated June 30th, 1942. He did not end up serving. He had a mastoid infection, like a ear area infection. But on this draft card, he lists himself as being six foot two and one half inches, 212 pounds, with brown hair, brown eyes, and a ruddy complexion. His birthday is listed as October 26, 1924, but 1924 is crossed out and 1923 is written instead. There's also a line that says name and address of the person who will always know your address. It's usually a parent or a spouse, and he listed his father, Albert, at Bank of America in San Francisco, which I did think was another indication that 
that Albert wasn't estranged from the children that he had, you know, after he remarried. And then it asks for his employer's name and address. And 18-year-old Rockwell Guy has written that his employer's name and address is the Academy, the American Academy of Dramatic Arts in New York, and his place of employment, his place of employment is listed as Carnegie Hall. All right, 57th Street, New York. Why not? Who's going to know? So he apparently just squeaked through high school. Again, we'll get more into that later. But he was apparently taking a drama class in New York City, and that is when he decided to adopt a stage name. And he chose the name Raul Rockwell. But it's while he's in this dramatic arts phase that he meets his first wife, Joellen, when he's working as, I should probably say, while he's posing as a drama professor. Guy can't stop lying. He lies when there's no need. He lies to inflate his own ego. But he's not insecure, right? He lies even when the thing he's lying about could be easily disproven. Like uh, Casey Anthony. Yeah, yeah. I went to high school with a person like that, and it's exhausting. There were big lies, and then there were small lies, and you really start to not believe anything the person says. It's like, if they say the sky is blue, you look up to see if it's true. Yeah, and he keeps it up, because so many people believe it. So, in 1946, Guy marries Joe Ellen Loop. This is his first wife. On their marriage license from May 1946, he says he was born, he ate, he's aging himself, so he says he was born October 26, 1919. He's making himself older, which is, that's a new one. His birthplace is correctly listed as New Mexico, but like everything else is a lie. He lies about his father's name, he claims his father's last name is Rockwell, he lies about where his father was born. He claims it was Florida, not Russia or Poland. Claims he doesn't know his mother's maiden name or where she's even from. And then their engagement announcement in the Pittsburgh Press at the end of April reads, quote, Mr. and Mrs. Loop have made known the engagement of their daughter, Joellen, to Guy R. Rockwell of New Mexico. Both are graduates of the Academy of Dramatic Arts, New York. No, they aren't. Um, she neither. Oh, she did. Yes, she graduated, but he didn't. Right. It says then that Joellen also attended Penn State College and goes on to say, quote, her fiancé was graduated from the University of California and attended the Royal Academy of Arts in Paris, as well as the School for Americans in Zermatt, Switzerland, end quote. None, none of, I don't think any of that's true. I think that's all, all lies. He definitely traveled a lot with his parents as a child, but I think that's all lies. It's like if I walk across the campus of Oxford, of Oxford University, and then I put on my resume that I went to Oxford. and just Technically not a lie. I mean, right. I mean, technically it's not a lie. <laughs> yeah, I have a feeling he does a lot of that. Mm. Like, a lot of that. The notice ends, quote, following their May wedding in the local Christian church, the bridal couple will leave for a honeymoon in Mexico and Central America, end quote. And then I found Joellen's obituary from 2002. She lived to be 77 and, thank God, got away from him. But her obituary reads, quote, she met a professor there named Guy Raul Rockwell and fell in love. She left her career and the big city nightmare and moved into a tree stump along a river in California. <laughs> her husband sang at KIEM radio station Monday through Friday at 5. They moved to the Northwest, and he worked at the Seattle Bon Marche Furniture Department. Then they opened a large antique shop. They were married 10 years, end quote. It's one of the more interesting obituaries I've read. I'm so amazed by your obituaries over there, but this one has to be the most amazing one I ever read. <laughs> I'm mostly interested in the tree stump, though. Like, what is that like? I love it. I think that it must have been just like a small wooden house. Like, mm. felt like living in a, I don't know, it's got a froggy vibe to it, it that very. I, I like very much. I looked up the radio station he sang for, and that is in Humboldt County, California. That is where their only child, who we'll call TJ, was born in the fall of 1949. It seems his in-laws also owned two restaurants in Humboldt County, but we'll get into that later. Bon Marche was modeled after the one in Paris. It was a department store in Seattle. Now it's a Macy's. 
the antique store they opened on the Seattle waterfront. Okay, so this antique store. It's this big old building. It is, I would say, kindly described as ramshackle (laughs) in some articles. It looks like the place a drug deal goes wrong in an after-school special. If the producers of the next John Wick or the Equalizer film franchise was, like, looking for a super derelict building with which to stage a tense shootout in, this place would be it. Okay, it looks like that now. Or back then. Yeah, I think it looked like that then. Okay. Yeah, I think that was part of the charm. It was like, <laughs> look how haunted and abandoned it looks. I'm for sure getting hepatitis in there. Let's go in and buy some object art. You know, it's that kind of uh-huh. <laughs> vibe. <laughs> you know, you know the kind. <laughs> Sorry. Um, he apparently had great taste. I think it says in the Anne Rule book that he bought all the stained glass windows from a church that was being torn down and, like, hung them up in the entry. And I'm sure it was fantastic. And I think he had great taste. Like, I think he legitimately knew antiques. Mm -hmm. He came from some money, you know. And I think it was decorated beautifully. And then, of course, there's Joellen. She is absolutely beautiful and working very hard to try to make everything work. So Guy runs this antique shop more like a nightclub. Doors open at 6 p.m. (laughs) (laughs) It's the strangest. I mean, in a way... In a way, it makes a ton of sense, right? Because it's so annoying when places that you need to go shopping in are also open the hours during when you work. And so, like, in some ways, I get it. It's smart. Bring your husband after work, that kind of thing. But nobody's bringing their husbands. It's just a bunch of, like, fancy, rich, older women flirting with him all night long. His wives loved it. And they keep things running. So, in the 1950s census... Raul Guy Rockwell is living in Seattle with his wife, Joellen, and their child, TJ. It looks like her parents are also in Seattle in 1950, maybe staying with a sibling. I also found one paper that makes it look like they may have also divorced at the end of 1950, which I did think was kind of interesting. More on that next week, but where people are located in 1950 will come into play later. Mm -hmm. There's a reason. I've brought this up, and that reason are unsolved murders. All right. In August of 1954, there's an engagement announcement in the Oakland Tribune for Guy's half-brother, and it states in that that their father, Albert, was living in Provincetown. So again, we've still got that Provincetown connection. That's what I'm searching for when I'm searching these directories and censuses and all of this stuff. I'm trying to find the links that tie people to these places where these murders have happened. Yeah. And, and it is there. There is a strong, strong Provincetown link. All right. Back to Seattle and the ramshackle nocturnal antique store <laughs> slash home of Raul Guy Rockwell. I want a ramshackle nocturnal antique store. I think that would be so much fun. I, I can see why it would be Intriguing. popular. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in early 1956, in walks... Manzanita and William Mearns. And they are visiting Guy's shop from Vancouver. I mean, I don't think they made the trip for his shop, but they're in Seattle and they make a trip to the shop. They'd been married in 1941 in Vancouver and they had three children together. Manzanita and Guy, or Rocky, as she called him, and she was called Manzi, so Rocky and Manzi, they are instantly smitten, smitten kittens. Right off the bat. But the problem is, they're both married. And pretty soon, Manzanita leaves her husband, William, for Guy. And when she does this, she just takes off without a word for like nine months. She just leaves. And the poor man had to literally file a missing persons report in order to find out his wife had shacked up with an antiques dealer and wanted a divorce. Which is... That's... Not good. He didn't want the divorce. I think he loved her and didn't didn't want their relationship to end. But I also, I suspect that William recognized that something wasn't right with Guy. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Gave like, up a weird wipe. Mm. Yes. Like, he protested the divorce, but I think it's not just because he loved Manzanita, the mother of his children, but I also think... I think he knew in his lizard brain that Guy was up to no good, that this was something 
danger, you know? Yeah, sure. Because it's, mm. it's just nobody would ever expect that what Guy was actually up to because it's so bad. So Manzanita ended up living in sin, as my mother would say, with Guy for the two years it took for her divorce to become final, which was something in 1960, I think. You know, I don't think that many people lived together in 1960 without being married. His divorce, he apparently, obviously probably before Manzanita runs off, he apparently tells his wife Joellen in a crowded gallery in front of witnesses that he doesn't love her anymore, he wants a divorce, and he wants her to leave. Witnesses said, because there were people when it happened, and they said they were absolutely shocked Mm. by the cruelty of it. He is such a shit. And I'm just so glad when I found Joellen's obituary to see that she lived a long life and she and their kid got away. Because this guy, he's so evil and he's so charming. And I think him saying in front of a busy shop full of clientele, a shop that she had helped build with her money and sweat equity, more of her sweat equity than his probably. And he says that he wants her gone and he wants a divorce. And I think that is just a really quick sneaky look at the real him. And they're very, very lucky that they got away. Very. But it's also, I think, uh, a ploy to avoid a scene at home or that she's upset with him you know what i mean like yes he's a coward very cowardly yeah very very and i wonder if he was involved in his child's life i don't think so and i think that's probably i hope not like he's the kind of person who will only disappoint you in the end it doesn't matter who you are or how much you love him it doesn't matter because he can't feel love himself Mm. he will only hurt you Like, he's just such a bad guy. So, Manzanita moves in with Guy, and after two years, she's able to get a contested divorce. Like, he wouldn't agree to the divorce. So, the the waiting period for that is two years. And I think it really says something about William's character that it all was very amicable. So, after Guy and Manzi are married in September of 1958... Manzanita and William, their oldest daughter, her name is Dolores Ann, and she is going to be attending university in Seattle, and she moves in with her mother and her new stepfather. She's a great student. She's quiet. She's hardly ever home because she spends almost all of her time split between campus and her full-time job, even though she does live there with the two of them. She's very close to her mother. The two of them share clothes. She's lovely. I found an ad in the paper from when she was 16 advertising her skills as a mother's helper. She was five foot five and a half inches, weighed, uh, I haven't done any of this, weighed 112 pounds. She's petite. Mm -hmm. She's petite. She has fair, clear skin. And in photos, it looks like her hair is dark. She worked for a temp agency, then got a full-time job at the Pacific Northwest Company and was able to pay her own tuition. What's a temp agency? A temp agency is like a temporary <laughs> temporary employment agency. Okay, got at it. At this time, it would have been something like secretarial mm-hmm. skills, right? So if your secretary was going on vacation, you'd call the temp agency to send over someone to take dictation and, mm-hmm. you know, sort things out for a week, that kind of stuff. Also, didn't we talk about the Pacific Northwest Company? Isn't that like a telecommunication phone lines and such yes. with the mm-hmm. chicken coop, mine will chicken coop murders, right? She exactly was also right. working. Yes. Mm-hmm. I remember now. Exactly. Gosh, you have a good memory. <laughs> Manzanita's two younger children stay in Canada, so they're still in Vancouver with their dad. But after the first disappearance, the the really bad one where Manzanita left, after that she has been regularly in touch and visits her younger children back in Canada at least once a month and calls them at least once a week, which doesn't seem like that often. But remember, like it's in another country. No, that's for the time that it takes effort. Let's say it like this. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. And she takes over where Joellen left off. She handles running the household. She does the cooking, the cleaning, including cleaning the antique shop. She does all the bookkeeping. She handles the taxes. All Guy does is charm the customers when the shop opened at night. He's just living the dream. You know what I mean? And he has that charm thing that all the worst kind of killers have, like in their own 
their own way, right? That charm that I really think is part of the evolutionary process of a sociopath almost, because if you have no conscience, it's extra handy if you've also got, you know, a pretty package to lure them in with. Anne Rule describes Guy as masculine in a sexy way. Like, I'm not going to lie, I I don't think he's handsome. I mean, if you think Richard Nixon's handsome, <laughs> maybe this guy would do it for you. I don't know. I'm probably, I'm probably, what's the word? Um, unconscious biased, bias, because I know yeah. how terrible he is. He's fine. I mean, his looks are fine. Can you, what do you... So while you were talking about him, I had to, co- to, to Google him immediately because I wanted to yeah. see how an, uh, a handsome Richard Nixon looks like. He looks average. Average. There's yeah. nothing special about him in, in any direction. No. It's like, he's, as you say, he's okay. But I think people can be very attractive in real life because they are, I don't know, witty, extremely funny, charming. It's, it's just impossible to judge anyone on a 50-year-old photo alone. He can be very attractive by the way he acts and treats women and and stuff like that. Totally agree. I just thought it was funny how she's like, he was so masculine and strong and big. And I'm like, well, like, okay. Now he's, I mean, he's like, he's a big guy. Yeah. But he clearly, clearly knew how to give women what they wanted. And I don't think it had anything to do with his looks or sexy time. I think it was actually a lot deeper and a lot more important than that. I think he was very smart, and I think he knew how to read people and mm-hmm. figure out their insecurities and make it work for him. You know, I bet he's one of these men where every woman he met felt seen, you know, in a way that no one has seen her in much too long. I bet he made them feel interesting and beautiful and wanted and just fucking sparkly. You know what I mean? When someone just makes you feel like their world revolves around you. I know 1000% what you mean. My first husband is like that or was like that. Uh, He could make me feel like the most beautiful and interesting woman in the world. The thing is, he could be in a room full of women and he could make every woman feel special at the same time. So Yeah. Exactly that. And it's a nice feeling. Don't get me wrong. It's a very nice feeling. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And you hope that what they're saying is genuine. Mm. But in Guy's case, it's never genuine. It's never. It's never genuine. All right. Backing up a little bit to 1959. That is when Guy meets Evelyn Emerson. She is a very attractive 40-year-old divorcee who was in with her family. I think it's her stepfather and her mother, but you'll also read that it was her stepmother and her husband. I'm not entirely certain what the relationship was, but it was parental. She's in there with with Clifford and Jermaine Winkler, who I think are her pa- her mother and stepfather, but regardless, it doesn't really matter. They're basically parental people to her and that she's close to. She's also an antiques dealer from the Seattle area, and they hit it off right away which Manzi is not loving. But the bigger problem for Manzi is apparently this older woman who would, was beautiful, but is always described as older, who would show up regularly. It's like Joan Rivers is coming for your man. She is older. She is wearing furs. <laughs> I'm sorry, she I'm smells like Chanel number no. five. <laughs> yeah. She's like a classy older broad mm-hmm. with like, who keeps, who keeps it up. You know, she, keeps it together. That's who I kind of imagine. And and this older lady is driving Manzi right up a tree. She is so angry and so jealous, and she thinks he's cheating on her. And she's really struggling with the toll it's taking on her mental health. So she kind of decides that she's just not going to put so much effort into promoting his antiques business anymore, the way Joellen had before her. Good for her. Yeah, definitely. And they need the money, so she gets a job at the bank, where she is considered a valued and trustworthy employee. I want to be really clear that I think 100% that Manzanita is a victim, but I also don't understand people who get involved with someone while they're married, and then they marry them, and then they're shocked when they're getting cheated on. I totally think I know how that happens. Okay, hear me out. Yeah. He was probably charming, as you said, and he lied his ass off, blaming 
everything on his first wife. She's crazy. She doesn't really understand me. She's constantly nagging. Nag, 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 nag. You are so special. You make me feel alive. Blah, 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 blah. Wait, and that's why they think that the person was only cheating with you. Because you are his right. one true love. Very special, right? Again, you want to believe that, right? Yeah, of course. Of course. Because you would never marry somebody you think is a bad person who cheats on his wife for no reason at all. Right. Both parties were married when they met, so that might be a whole different dynamic. Maybe she was unhappy in the marriage, missing something, and was looking for something special. And she thought it's the same for him. Like how she went into that relationship. If you're, you're cheating yourself, how can you blame the other person for cheating? But you're just cheating because... You know, yeah. you want love or whatever. I don't know. Well, that's true. Yeah, no, these are all very, very valid points that I think contributed to how this all ended up happening. Yeah, yeah. And I should also add that, so later on, uh, we'll talk about this more next week, but we know Ruth Terry's family, they met him. And they were shocked. They said, I think it was her great niece said it was or her niece, said it was shocking what a different person Ruth was when she was mm. with Guy. Like, he controlled her. Like, yeah. he, you know what I mean? And we'll talk about it more next week, but I have no doubt that he was incredibly manipulative, controlling. I bet this man could have written the book on gaslighting. He's just that kind of person. He never takes the blame for anything ever. Nothing will ever be his fault. It's always someone else. I'm actually surprised that he was not isolating Manzanita, that she was still able to hold contact with her children and her first husband. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. Because that also sounds like something he would do, isolating Well, someone. I think he learned his lesson. <laughs> we'll, put it, we'll put it that way. Manzanita, on a f good for her, she decides she needs to go talk to somebody. She needs a therapist because... She feels like she's just unraveling. Her mental health is a mess. She's jealous. She's just falling apart. And the therapist that saw her reported that she seemed fine. She wasn't, she wasn't anybody who was a danger to themselves or others. Mm -hmm. um, she seems like somebody who is determined to save her marriage, but doesn't need any kind of medication or anything like that. She does ease up on her duties at the gallery, like we said. Oh, and also the bank job. I've read that she took the job at the bank because she wanted to get out of the house more and be like away from him and away from that whole situation. But then I also read, which I think could maybe both be true, that they needed the money mm -hmm. because he did more flirting than, than selling. Then it is April 1st, 1960. And April 1st, 1960 is the first day that both Manzanita and Dolores are missing. Manzanita is missing from a bank job that she has never once been late for or a no-show for. Dolores is missing from classes that she has just paid full tuition for. Both are incredibly unusual, and people are worried. So, Manzi's ex and Dolores' father, William, he calls Manzi's sister, Rita, who also lives in Seattle. But Rita says no, she hasn't heard from her. And, unfortunately, that's not unusual. She figured it was because Rita, mm -hmm. her sister, really disapproved of Guy. She thought Guy was an asshole, and like, like a sister does, she let her know. What are you doing with this guy? He's bad news. And it had kind of made it so that they weren't in touch anymore, which is sad. Neighbors that had grown close to them asked where Manzanita and Dolores were. So at first, Guy says, oh, yeah, they're back in Vancouver. They're visiting, you know, Manzi's younger kids. More time passes. Manzi's daughter calls from Vancouver a couple of times looking for her mother or older sister. And Guy says oh, they're not home right now, or oh, they're not feeling well right now, I'll have them call you back, no one ever calls them back. When days turn into weeks with no sign of Manzanita or Dolores, Guy changes his story again, and now he's telling everyone that actually his wife has deserted him. He was ashamed to tell them before that she took her daughter out of school, wiped out their joint bank account, burned all their tax paperwork, leaving him in terrible terrible financial straits, and she left him. 
And the neighbors are like, oh, my stars? Really? Like, they're they're just shocked. They're shocked. Mm-hmm. The neighbors are shocked. Shocked she would do it. Shocked she would leave. They're also, I think, really hurt. They thought they were close friends to hers or had been, you know, becoming friendly. And they were kind of hurt that she didn't say that she was planning to leave him. You know, they they thought that that would be the sort of thing she would talk to them about. And they're kind of hurt, I think, when they realize that maybe that wasn't the case. They also note that now that his wife left him, he is really drinking heavily. Like, he's noticeably drunk often, which is uncharacteristic. And he seems incredibly shaken. So it all fits. They're like, yeah, this is... Makes sense, this is, yeah. yeah. this is mm. sad. And then on April 16th, Guy files for divorce from Manzanita, citing cruelty and desertion. That's fast. Yeah, he doesn't... I mean, he's he so shaken and... So devastated. Just needs two weeks. And then two weeks later, yeah, he's like, you know what? It's fine. I'm just gonna end this this second marriage and on to the next. So May 30th, 1960, there's a family having a picnic on the bank of the Columbia River. They make the gruesome discovery of a severed human leg. It's either wearing a stocking or it's in a box with a stocking. I've seen Mm -hmm. both reported, but it's severed halfway between the knee and the thigh. On June 22nd, a second leg is found about two miles from the first leg. This one had been broken off closer to the knee than the first leg had. I'm from the East Coast, so I looked up some quick information on the Columbia River. Wikipedia says, quote, It flows through southern British Columbia, central Washington, and forms a portion of the Washington-Oregon boundary before emptying into the Pacific Ocean. It is the largest river in the Pacific Northwest region of the United States. The river rises in the Rocky Mountains of British Columbia, Canada. It flows northwest, then south into the U.S. state of Washington, then turns west to form most of the border between Washington and the state of Oregon, before emptying into the Pacific Ocean. The river is 1,243 miles or 2,000 kilometers long. Its drainage basin is roughly the size of France and extends into seven of the United States plus a Canadian province. Wow. The fourth largest river, it's only the fourth largest, in the United States by volume. The Columbia has the greatest flow of any North American river entering the Pacific. End hey. quote. Impressive. Right? I had no idea. This is a huge, roaring river. And if it starts in the Rockies of British Columbia, then I would imagine May and into June would be especially roaring because of snowmelt, right? Mm. So. It's kind of a miracle that one leg was found, never mind both. More on those legs later, a lot more. On July 26th, the decree of divorce that Guy had filed against Manzanita was granted. Quick. At that time, the waiting period for an uncontested divorce was three months. And since Manzi had not contested it, she didn't fight against it, like she told her therapist she would if, you know, he he had tried. But because it was uncontested after three months, they were legally divorced. So the very same day that Guy is legally divorced from Manzanita, which is three months after she went missing, he announces that he is engaged to the beautiful Evelyn Emerson. So to look at this from Evelyn's perspective, she was divorced, well-traveled in antiques industry herself. She was a dealer. She met him back in early 1960. I don't know if they met in late 59 or early 60, but that's kind of when they had met. And they hit it off, but she wasn't that interested in him uh, initially. So the 1961 article I mentioned by Ruth Reynolds says, quote, He filed his divorce suit on April 15, 1960, hoping to marry Evelyn Emerson. However, she seemed surprisingly indifferent to his charms. After he confided his disappointment to his best friend, the Winklers received a letter from Major John Riley of the United States Army telling them about Rockwell's conspicuous gallantry as an intelligence officer from 1939 to 1945, how he refused to accept honors preferred by France and the United States, 
and how he tried to keep secret the fact that he was one of the foremost living American poets. End quote. I think she wasn't interested. And then what happened was, I'm guessing he wrote the letter. I mean, he of course obviously wrote he did. the letter. But so I'm guessing she, he was interested in her. She wasn't interested in him. But her family has money, honey. So all of a sudden, her parents get a fake letter saying, oh, I was just speaking with Guy Rockwell, who mentioned Jesus. he'd met you. Did you know this and this about him? Like, how lovely that you've, blah, 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 like, this kind of nonsense. Of course but, he wrote it. I mean, that's so obvious. Right? But they didn't know it. Ugh! <laughs> It's so frustrating. I know. They're like, well, maybe he'd be good for her, you know? Yeah. And then she had seen how devastated he was that his wife had taken off and abandoned him. And he was so accomplished. I mean, he was born in Saint-Tropez, France, <laughs> and had such a gift for languages that even though he didn't move to the United States until he was a teenager... He was immediately accepted into University of California because his language skills were so amazing. And look, you can tell he's good at languages because he has no French accent whatsoever. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> For someone born and raised in Saint-Tropez to have no French accent at all. And Evelyn's like, I know, I was born in Paris too. It's wild, isn't it? Like he <laughs> manufactured all these, mm. ooh, he's clever. And also he always, it looks like he always used something to connect. Yes. You were born in France. Well, that's a coincidence. I was born in France as well. I just came that's here as a right. teenager. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It's pretty wild. And I think that those accomplishments that he had for, for the, for the, in, in the war, I think those were actually his brother Michael's war accomplishments. Because mm -hmm. his brother Michael was actually a, a hero of the Second World War. So, Yeah. So the thing that Guy was known for in the antiques industry were these gold weights from Africa. They're not made of gold. They're made of brass, and they're for measuring gold. They go back to at least the 1300s, and it was they were made in, like, sets, and they were what Africans on the Gold Coast would use to measure gold dust, salt, certain spices. Mm -hmm. They go way back, right? I read this incredibly interesting article about them because it's fascinating, but we do not have time for it. And yes, these weights he is collecting are of great cultural and religious significance to the people he's basically stealing them from. And no, it wasn't a different time because he's pretty open and everybody's open about how he has to like smuggle things in because customs would never allow him to leave the country with this or that. You know what I mean? So did he travel to Africa himself? He did. Okay. In the past, I believe. Yeah, I think so. I don't know whether he just went with his father because his father was constantly taking trips around the world. Mm -hmm. But I do think he probably, probably did go to Africa. I, I would believe that. But in any case, he's really known for these, these weights that are Asante or Ashanti weights. And so he tells everybody, one of the things that he starts telling people after Manzi and Dolores vanish is, well, I've had some good news, though. I have some good news. I've just been awarded a Fulbright scholarship. And if you don't know what a Fulbright is, it's a big deal. Bold.org says, quote, the Fulbright program is regarded as one of the most prestigious international education exchange programs in the United States and allows accomplished students to conduct research, attend graduate school, and exchange ideas with other young professionals around the world. The cultural exchange program chooses students for their academic merit and leadership potential, and several Fulbright alumni have won a Nobel or Pulitzer Prize, end quote. A Fulbright is like, if someone's won a Fulbright, that is, that's impressive. Fucking huge deal. He did it's huge. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's huge. And it's he's telling everyone that it's this whole thing about how he doesn't think that the Portuguese shaped these weights in the way that other people think and that it's, you know, more pervasive in Africa, all this kind of stuff. I'll send you a link to the articles. Super interesting. She's thrilled for him. It's a huge deal. And you would be really proud, like, if your significant other had won a Fulbright. Like, it's, it's an accomplishment. Then he tells her that some friends have put together the funds for him to purchase a yacht. It's called the Ibsen. 
And as a honeymoon, the two of them will sail together to Portugal and then on to Africa for his Fulbright research. And then when the work is completed, he says, you know, they'll sail back and he'll sell the boat and repay his very generous friends. And that's, but that's like the tip of the iceberg of lies that he has told Evelyn. He's a war hero. He has all kinds of made up credentials and degrees. And that stuff was hard to check up on back then. Yeah. And all of these things work together to kind of impress her. And before she knows it, she's just head over heels in love. And they decide that rather than wait until their September 1st wedding date, they'll just get married as soon as possible. And so they're married on July 29th at Evelyn's parents' house, like in in their living room. So she closes her antique store and sends the contents to auction. Her plan is to give all of that to Guy as like a wedding gift when they set sail to go together to Portugal and Africa on their romantic honeymoon on the Ibsen yacht. Um, Guy had gone from married to single to married again in three days. (laughs) Three days. After they're married, he doesn't waste any time. On August 3rd, uh, Guy tells his new in-laws that he has discovered someone in Canada who is selling a collection of rare Indian artifacts and antiques. He's thrilled. He tells them he sent a deposit of $500 already. And he knows of two collectors right off the bat who are willing to pay him more than $16,000 for these rare carvings, paintings, and and whatnot. $16,000 in 1960 is a lot of money. I looked it up, and the average income was $5,600 a year. The average cost of a home was a little under $12,000. So you're carrying around, think of what your house cost or what your neighbor's house cost if you're renting or whatever. And imagine you're walking around carrying that much money in cash. Yeah. Anyway, so he says to his new in-laws that he's in a little bit of a pickle, right? Because he needs an additional eight grand in order to make this deal in Canada happen when he's going to double his money. And the problem is he's closed his shop up, as Evelyn did, and sent everything to auction. But he tells them the sale hasn't happened yet. And, of course, his ex-wife, Manzanita, has completely cleaned him out of their savings when she left him. He wasn't sure what the best course of action might be, but Evelyn's mother assures him there's nothing to worry about. She whips out her checkbook, and she writes a check for $10,000. She wants him to have a little bit of extra money just in case he runs into some difficulty, so she just adds another two grand just to be safe. And Guy's like, I couldn't. No, really. There's no way. He's looking for his checkbook so he can write a check and (sighs) refund the extra. He really is. Or he would, you know, if he knew where his checkbook was. Oh, but if you insist. And then he's like, okay, I'll take the money from you, but only if you promise me that you'll let me repay you an additional two grand each to you and to Evelyn as an extra thank you for your trust in me. You know, he's so clever because... You know, the con and con man stands for confidence, right? That's the whole point. You gain someone's trust, then you fuck them over. And that is exactly what he is doing. Evelyn is a newlywed, and she's like, I want to go with you. I don't want you going by yourself. And he's like, no, you mustn't. This trip could be very dangerous, not to mention illegal. I don't want you involved in it. He has to make sure that she's safe and nothing happens. She's too precious to him. And then he's like, the only thing keeping me from going is the fear you'll be alone. And he's like, maybe you could stay with your parents, will you promise me? He's like really making it seem like the last thing he wants to do is leave her, but tears himself away. So he leaves on the 3rd, and he says to her that he's going to be back the first week of August. He'll be back on the 7th at the latest, like four or five days away. And then they'll travel together to San Francisco where the yacht is waiting, and then they'll be off on their honeymoon. Long story short, he leaves that evening, calls Evelyn at her parents' house from the airport, and he's like, I'll be gone no longer than four days. And she's like, I love you. Don't get caught by pirates or immigration. And he's like, will do. So four days pass. There's no word from Guy. After six days, Evelyn is now really starting to get worried that maybe there was a problem with pirates or immigration. And because, again, he is traveling with a lot of cash. She thinks $10,000. So she calls Guy's lawyer, the one who had handled his divorce only weeks ago, 
Jeffrey Hyman, and he thinks that she's overreacting until she tells him how much cash he has on him, at which point he's like, "Uh uh-oh, so he calls the police and he files a missing person report. This case is ironically handled by a man named Sergeant Herb Swindler. So that's funny, because Swindler. Swindler's the good guy. Swindler begins to look into this disappearance, and the first problem is that they can't find Guy on any of the flight manifests leaving Seattle. So he gets in touch with Guy's bank, and that's where he learns that yes, he had been in, he had cashed a $10,000 check from Mrs. Winkler, and he'd also taken $3,000, which were the sale of all of his things, out of the joint account he shared with Manzanita, leaving it almost completely empty. And the lawyer's like, well, that's odd. I told him to be sure he closed that account when they got divorced, so she couldn't access the proceeds from that and steal that from him, too. Sound advice. If your husband had cheated on you, stolen from you, vanished, you wouldn't leave him as a signee on your joint account, would you? Unless you knew that he wasn't ever not going to be missing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah, he knew she wouldn't be able to have access. Exactly. He wasn't Mm -hmm. worried about her wiping him out, because she never had. The next problem that Swindler has is the car. Turns out Guy didn't own a car. He had been renting one. And he had not returned his car on the 3rd, which is when he said he was, and when he called Evelyn from the airport. He returned it the morning of the 4th. So... They're like, this is all a little weird. We should see if we can find out some more information. Maybe you should do like a press piece. Just go in the newspaper, ask readers to call you or the lawyer or the police with any information. And that's what she does. She's like, if you know where my husband is, please, 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 please get in touch. Because she thinks something happened to him. Something must have happened. Yes. She's beside herself with worry about what has happened to her husband. And this is probably, as I'm looking at the clock, a good place to stop because next week we have so much to talk about, just so much forensic evidence, more women, more terribleness. And then I'm, of course, going to tell you everything I can about Ruth Marie Terry, the Lady of the Dunes. But... It's a lot. It's a. It's this it's case. A lot. I can't wait. Yeah, but I, I have to let it sink in. I think it's a lot of information now. This is I the background. To so it. today, yeah, today we have a lot of background on, on guy who he was, the kind of person he was, the kind of lies he told, you know, and then, yeah, let that kind of marinate, and then next week we're going to talk about. Next week's next week's is bad. Don't eat next week. How about something good? Uh, my something good is a new TV show I discovered uh, called Poker Face with Natasha Lyon, who I adore. Such a great comedic talent. I love her. Is it good? If you enjoyed shows like Columbo, which is one of my favorite shows ever, or Murder, <laughs> She Wrote, for example, you're mm-hmm. really going to enjoy Poker Face, which is kind of a modern take on the woman solving murders uh, each episode is like a, a different murder so really like colombo and nice there's a lot of big stars in every episode so it's really really great i can really recommend it you're gonna enjoy it good it's been on my list for a couple of weeks and i'm looking forward to seeing it it looks really, really good. good you have yeah. something good oh my exercise bike came perfect yay exercise bike it's not broken this time Nope, not broken this time. It was in the correct number of pieces that had to be put together. <laughs> Last time the pieces were broken in half, so oh god, it's a non-starter. But yeah, yeah, so yay, <laughs> perfect. And and genetic DNA, which is what solved this case. I mean, yeah. it's just and so many others. I don't think. Yeah, I don't think I can adequately express my happiness. That we know who Ruth was, that we know mm. that she's the Lady of the Dunes. It's um huge, huge. I can't wait. I cannot wait to tell you about everything. All right. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our other episodes, please do us a huge favor and go to your favorite podcast app and check if you can leave us a rating and or review 
It not only helps us with the algorithm so that other people can find us, but also it helps us in a motivational way because we really do love to read your reviews and your messages. So send us one via email, freshhelppodcast at gmail.com. Go to our webpage uh, where you find links to our Facebook, to our Patreon, to our merch store, to our PO box, to our Instagram, whatever you need. And I think that's it, right? I think so. Yeah. Please tell your pets we said hi, hug them, cuddle them, be kind to your fellow human being, and most of all, be kind to yourself, because that's the hardest part of it all. It is. And if you are going through hell, keep going. Tschüss. Bye. Bye.